Amodasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa Buddham Sarangachami Dhamam Sarangachami Sarang Sarangachami Dutyati Buddham Sarangachami Dutyati Dhamam Saranangachami Dutyanti Sangham Saranangachami Tatyanti Udang Saranangachami Tatyanti Dhamman Saranangachami Tatyapi Sangham Saranangachami. This completes the going. Anyatipada Ramani Sakapadam Samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from harming or destroying living beings. Adina dana Brahmani Sakatadam Samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. Kamesu Michachara Brahmani Sakatadam Samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musavada Brahmani Sikapadam Samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from all speech. Sura Maria Majapadatana Brahmani Sikapadam Samadhyami. I undertake the precept. To refrain from intoxicants that cause carelessness. I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortune of others. I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relations with others. I undertake the precept to act with loving kindness and compassion in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the Eightfold Path through daily study, meditation, and reflection. 
With these ten precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Through virtue, good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. This completes the ten precepts. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings make themselves truly happy. Thank you very much and good evening. Um, the, uh, Michael and Deborah who have taken the responsibility for making things, making sure that things go smoothly during the retreat have been dealing with certain problems. I don't know, do you need to make an announcement to people about... Uh, uh, the primary problem is uh, the bathrooms, toilets here, uh, they once again clogged and I don't think it's the result of people throwing in um, uh, tissue paper. I think uh, the, the pipes, they're already previously damaged from the roots um, um, clogging the pipes. So, so uh, at least for, for the time being, it's going to be closed. Okay. Are we going to try to do anything before the retreat's over with, or just... Um, from my understanding, I spoke to Russell. That, that's one of the reasons why I was making a little bit of noise, because I wasn't able to get any, any receptions. So therefore, I had to use the landline, and I apologize. Yeah, I had no other choice. Um, uh, Russell explained to me that um, in order to fix the problem, they have to, they have to replace a, a length of 25 feet of pipes, and that's not going to happen in, in, uh, during this retreat. <laughs> it's also, it would also be, I think, very noisy and disruptive, too. So we'll have to make do with uh, fewer toilets, unfortunately. So... More, for, more unfortunately for the second, uh, what is it, the second, second retreat people. <laughs> this retreat is nearly over. <laughs> Actually, this retreat is just halfway, you know. So oh, yeah, that's true. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so, uh, anyway, they do have these problems they're dealing with, and they're uh, doing their best not to disturb people with the... the but uh, please, uh, they'll, they'll do their best not to be near you when they need to do these things. And maybe if you, if you see that they're working on something, you can spare yourself the disturbance by, you know, going somewhere else. So, okay. Anyway, yes? Um, I'm just wondering, because Deborah and I were uh, in charge of the dinner, Mm-hmm. And we're wondering how many people are actually taking dinner. So we would know how to measure whether we need to cook or not. Because for the past couple of nights, we kind of had to scramble up and trying to come up with something because there wasn't enough left over from lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, but if not everybody's taking dinner, then maybe we don't need to cook. Just be whatever left over and maybe fruit. So, uh, I don't know if you are taking dinner, raise your hand. I don't take dinner. No, just who take dinner, raise your hand. Oh. So this is a take dinner. Yeah. So one, two, three, 
about now or maybe we'll finish what, what we started talking about last night I think that uh, June began with a question about well re- relating to uh, the uh, neuroanatomy of uh, certain things there, and, and I'll tell you what that was about there is uh, a woman who uh, is a neuroscientist had a stroke some number of years ago. I guess now it must be 10, 12 years ago, something like that. And uh, this stroke severely damaged the left side of her, of her brain, the left hemisphere of her brain. But because she was a neuroscientist, uh, she had a good understanding of what was taking place as she had this stroke. And also during the time that she was recovering and the way that it affected her. But what was very interesting about the particular parts of the brain, of her brain, that were damaged as a result of the stroke, is it damaged the part of the brain that's responsible for uh, creating a sense of self separate from everything else. And as a result of that, even while she was having the stroke, she felt very happy. <laughs> she described it as nirvana. Uh, and I, I, I don't think uh, I don't think she really knows the meaning of the word nirvana and that would be maybe a little bit but certainly she had she experienced a lot of uh, uh, bliss and happiness and a sense of, of being one with everything and not being separate from anything. And this after you know, you know, she was treated for the stroke and she recovered, it took many years for the parts of the left side of her brain to uh, begin functioning uh, to a normal degree again. And so she had a long period of time where her brain was not so strongly identifying the the sense of self and generating the cravings related to that sense of separateness. And she enjoyed a a lot of uh, great happiness, which is very interesting. The part of her brain that was damaged is the left side, which is very logical and linear. And it seems one of the things it does is draw the little line that separates the part of the universe that's self from the rest of the universe that's not self. And so it wasn't doing that. And, uh, the other thing that's interesting about this story, she wrote a book, by the way, called Stroke of Insight. So if you find this interesting enough that you wanted to know more, you could get uh, the book called Stroke of Insight. And there is also available on the internet a video that's, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes long of her talking about her experience. So if you uh, uh, wanted to see that. But 
Anyway, as she recovered, it took many years for her to recover from the damage that was done to her brain. But as the left side of her brain, where all the damage was, recovered, she was aware of certain things that her mind was doing as that side of the brain recovered, that she had been very happy because it wasn't doing anymore. And so she deliberately trained herself as those particular tendencies started to come back to let go of them and eliminate them and stay free of them. So I, I thought that, you know, you brought that up. I, it's a very interesting uh, in terms of what we do in the practice. Because in terms of uh, an important part of our practice, we retrain our minds and retrain our brains too. We actually change the way our brains function by the, by the practices that we do and the training we do. Um, for some years, the Dalai Lama has been encouraging Western scientists to do research uh, on the brain as it relates to meditation and states of, of happiness and things like this. And uh, he has also been encouraging uh, some uh, uh, monks who are yogis who have been doing practices for many years to cooperate with the uh, scientists in this research. Uh, in the beginning, he couldn't, they couldn't get any. In the first days, they actually set up a research study and they had quite a few Western scientists with their equipment and everything who were willing to do this. And uh, they just couldn't talk any monks into doing it. <laughs> into having, uh, having the equipment attached to them while they meditated and so forth. But more recently, and especially there are certain, there are certain younger monks and there is one Western monk who uh, was uh, uh, born in France, who have agreed to participate in these studies. And what they've shown is that as a result of their practices, that their brains function in a very different way. The certain areas of their brain related to feelings of loving kindness and compassion and happiness, which show tremendously stronger activity than an ordinary person's brain does, you know. So um, these things are all related. So uh, in the practices that we do, uh, especially those practices that are devoted to um, changing our our the tendencies of our mind to produce particular mental states, do actually change our brains and we can of course produce the same kinds of effects without having to damage large areas of our brain. That's the unfortunate thing about what happened to Dr. Taylor is although she enjoyed blissful states of nirvana she's unable to function. And she is now but for a long long time she couldn't. Everything had to be done. Uh, you need you, your brain needs to understand the difference between uh, you and the rest of the world and your body and the rest of the world in order to function and do things. But it's being able to do, the, to do that without being attached to it and without having all the suffering that's associated with it, which is uh, what we're setting about doing.
Um, so do you think in the future that they can develop some kind of surgery? Save all the knee pain, back pain. Some, some people uh, do believe that's true, and they are in, in, including. Uh, uh, there's even uh, at least one meditation teacher that I know of, um, who. What he told me is he thought that perhaps the day would come when somebody could sign themselves into a clinic. You know. <laughs> <laughs> They do some procedures on them, and then they come out enlightened. <laughs> Why not? Why not? It's a high risk brain surgery. <laughs> uh, I. Well, it's obvious. Obviously, our brain is sick. So that's you know, think think of that as a brain is not sick. Why not? Oh, well, I mean. What, whatever you, yeah. if that part of the brain, it's obviously so our, our brain is is doing some things that don't contribute to our best interest. Yes, I'll put it that way. Yes. Okay, yes. Uh, our minds, uh, our minds need to be changed. That's for certain. So, no, but. Um, it's worth maybe us just answering. I think somebody even asked this question. I'm not sure if they did, but asked why? Why are we the way we are? Why do we have this sense of self the way that we do that causes us the problems that we do? And that's a very that's a very good question, and you know it's worth looking at. So, our brains, of course, are the the basis uh, for the mind, and as we know. You do things to the brain, and it directly affects the mind. And th- this example of this stroke is an example. But you know, there's all kinds of diseases and drugs and things like that that affect the physical organ. And as a result of the effect on the physical organ, the mind is changed in some way. There's drugs that can make you. Uh, uh, happy. There's drugs that can overcome anxiety. You know, there's all kinds of uh, examples of this that we can look at. So, there's no question that the mind and the brain are very, very closely interconnected. And uh, and so, uh, and you know, of course, that uh, the structure of the brain is determined by genes, and it's inherited. And we all know that all human brains are somewhat similar, and all human minds share certain similarities. So we can look to nature to find the answers to some of these things. What do we see that our minds do? Uh, we're born, we 
have sensory experience, uh, our minds create a model of the universe inside, our model of the world, of how things are. Uh, Some of the sensations we have are pleasant and some are unpleasant. And there's an automatic reaction built into our minds, built into our brain somehow, that causes aversion to arise to pain and desire to arise in response to pleasure. And then this becomes a very important part of the whole way that we function. So if we look at that and examine that, uh, that's determined by our genes, and that is the result of an evolutionary process. Part of what caused us to be humans and to survive and, and as, as an organism on the planet to do well, to be successful. If we look, we find, for example, you find the taste of uh, sugar pleasant. Sweet things t- uh, produce a, uh, a quality of pleasantness, right? And for human beings as a kind of animal living in the world, and for all of the ancestors of human beings going back hundreds of thousands and millions of years, the things that were sweet, that were found in nature, were fruits and other things that contained many valuable nutrients that were beneficial to the health and well-being of these bodies. Similarly, we find the taste uh, of bitterness to be unpleasant. Many plants that contain poisonous substances Uh, the poisonous substances in those plants have a taste of bitterness to them. Now, the the sweetness and the pleasantness isn't in the sugar that's in the fruit. You know what I'm saying? Yes. The sugar is just a it's just a molecule, and it's in the fruit. Our body is designed so that when that particular molecule comes in contact with our taste buds, it produces a sensation in our mind of sweetness and pleasure, and it triggers a a rising of desire, which leads to a behavior of obtaining more of this food that is highly nutritious and beneficial to us. Similarly, the bitterness is not in the poison of the toxic plant. It too is just another molecule. The bitterness is programmed into our bodies by inheritance to protect us so that when we put the poisonous plant in our mouth, the reaction is aversion and we spit it out and we don't want any more of that poisonous plant, which contributes to our survival and well-being. All of those things that we experience as pleasurable to some degree contribute, our attraction to them contributes to our 
individual survival and well-being, and also to our producing children, and also to our raising those children to become adults. Of all of those things that cause some degree of aversion and a negative reaction and unpleasantness, all of these things are things that have the potential to uh, detract in some way from our well-being and, and survival to our producing children and to our being able to raise those children to be adults so that they in turn can have children. Many of our tendencies are greed just in terms of survival and greed contributes to uh, uh, having more of the means to our survival, especially when there's uh, scarcity. Lust. Lust assures more offspring. And uh, the craving that we have to be respected and admired, or to be famous, or to be powerful. Human beings live in social groups, and within any social group, the person who is most respected and admired, or famous, or powerful, has available to them more of the resources necessary for survival than the one who doesn't. So you can see the pattern here, that what we are is a biological organism, the qualities of which are beneficial to the success of us as a biological organism. And we could say that we are uh, one of the most successful organisms that has ever evolved on this planet. We live everywhere. Our numbers are enormous. As a matter of fact, we are now in danger because we're too successful as an organism. But the thing that nature in designing our bodies and our brains and causing our minds to, particular, to function in a particular way had no particular interest in was our happiness, our ultimate happiness, our freedom from suffering. And it actually contributes more there is, you may not know this, but scientists, biologists, really find no reason why we couldn't live for hundreds of years or thousands of years. But our bodies are actually programmed to stop producing crucial hormones and to stop uh, repairing themselves in a certain way. We're programmed to get old and die. Well, the reason we're programmed to get old and die is to make way for our children and grandchildren and so forth to live and survive. So nature, nature has had no concern for our suffering, for our pain, uh, sickness, old age, and death. Nature has designed us to be successful in exactly the way that we are as biological organisms. So what we we are concerned with because we have the intelligence and the potential for wisdom is to make a change in the way that we are 
and it is possible to do that. And it is very fortunate for us that it is possible for to do that. It's it is fortunate that uh, that we can free ourselves from the programs of our mind that enslave us. And as a result of freeing ourselves from those from that slavery to to craving, to desire and aversion, that we can transcend the the dukkha that is naturally a part of being the kind of, of uh, being that we are in the kind of world that we're in. So, we're changing our brains, changing our minds in order to change our brains, in order to become uh, individually happier beings. But the other thing that I think that is more important The, the planet has finite resources of space, of water, nutrients, sunlight, uh, fuel, all of the things that are necessary to support the kind of life that we have. And all of those resources are coming to be at risk. The other thing is we have some very primitive programs in, in us. When we, when we experience aversion, aversion becomes hatred, and hatred manifests in committing acts of, of violence and destruction to others. Likewise, desire uh, becomes greed, and greed when it becomes truly out of control, leads to uh, similar tremendous acts of, of uh, uh, cruelty uh, in order to try to obtain what we want at the expense of other people. So, as human beings, we have created tremendous amount of suffering for ourselves and continue to do so. The poverty that exists because of uh, because of greed, the war in the world, it has been there. It's always been there throughout the history of our species that we can trace back. But the magnitude of it and the technical technological abilities that we have to inflict suffering uh, and to uh, to cause destruction are greater than they have ever been before. So we have a world that is in peril because our numbers are so great and because we are consuming the resources of the world at an impossible rate. And this is driven by these instinct, these in- instincts that lead us to to uh, desire through desire and aversion from craving, right? We have war and suffering. We have poverty. We have disease. We have uh, so many problems in this world. At the same time, we have 
tremendous intelligence and tremendous technological ability. Now imagine, imagine if the people in in this world were free from craving. If they knew how to be happy without constantly trying to amass more and more of everything and take things away from each other. Imagine if the people in this world were relatively free from the kind of ill will, uh, the aspect of aversion that develops ill will, hatred, cruelty, uh, and all of these other things. And imagine if we use our intelligence instead of producing cell phones that could do more and more different kinds of things, take pictures and send and receive emails and uh, I don't even know what all things cell phones do anymore. (laughs) Uh, Cook pasta. Oh, they now have GPSs in them, so your cell phone can tell you where you are. Just put a sticker on the back of your cell phone that says, you are here. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, if we use our intelligence and our our technology uh, to solve our problems, the problems of everybody, and if we did it in the spirit of loving kindness and compassion, and if we weren't driven by the feeling that the only way that we could be happy is through the exploitation of other people and through the, the uh, uh, accumulation of, of resources at the expense of other people, it would be a totally different world. And as a matter of fact, it has to, I think it has to become a totally different world. It is going to become a totally different world one way or the other anyway. We can see that. You know, we, uh, we look ahead into the future and we may not be able to predict exactly what's going to happen, but we know with absolute certainty that something very dramatically different is going to come about, probably not too long from now. Uh, but if we transform ourselves, the same thing that can lift us individually out of a, an existence that is condemned to dukkha can lift us collectively and not just us as human beings but all of the other different kinds of beings that we share the world with. So uh, this awakening will lead not to our only our own individual liberation but if it catches on if it spreads wide enough and far enough, it can, uh, it can transform the entire world. So. I just cannot resist asking this question. So, in your opinion, what's the future of Buddhism in, in the West? Well, what I see is, uh, you see, a hundred years ago, the only Buddhism that anyone knew is what was taught. It, it, you, you didn't know any Buddhism at all unless you lived in a part of the world where Buddhism was present. The only Buddhism you knew was the version of it that was taught in, uh, in the local monastery. Or 
you might live in a place where there were, where you were exposed to more than one school of Buddhism, but it was pretty much within the same cultural stream. Uh, the only teachers you had were the ones that were local, uh, and the only techniques that you had were the ones that were local. The ability to travel long distance was uh, uh, limited, difficult, time-consuming. At the same time, the different versions of Buddhism became strongly entrenched within certain cultures. Burma has its style of Buddhism. And it's very similar to, but different than the version of Buddhism in Thailand. And uh, that is yet again quite different than Buddhism in Vietnam, and so on and so forth. And so these entrenched schools were resistant to anything that's different. And often, you know, you'll find there's a lot of disagreement. My, my way is better than your way, sort of thing. Rather than the sharing of information. Now, one interesting thing about this is that uh, in the time of the Buddha, he once held a, a gathering in which there were uh, 1,250 arhats in one group, just one single group. And that was not all of them. That's just the ones that got together for this one meeting. And there were many... How back then is very difficult. So they, they, they're mostly local people. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, it's not like they flew in on yeah. jumbo jet. I'm oh, sorry, how many again? 1,250. Oh, that's nice. They probably, they, they probably travel by arhats. 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 And, you know, you read the sutras and, and there were thousands and thousands and thousands of, of stream winners and, and so on and so forth. And uh, in uh, subsequent to the life of the Buddha, there were councils held where you know you, you had to be an arhat to participate, and hundreds of uh, hundreds of monks came together. And yet, perhaps thirty years ago, it uh, it seemed that uh, you know are are there any arhats in the world, or how many? You know, it's not very many. They're certainly not all over the place. It's not like every mo- monastery in Asia has two or three arhats minimum and a few dozen uh, string winners and so forth. Uh, and it, it seems that two things have happened. Over 2,500 years, there's been many different ways to teach and practice the Dharma have developed. But also in the process, it seems to have become less effective. The interesting thing about Buddhism coming to the West is it's not all one kind of Buddhism. Every kind of Buddhism is coming. And they're all coming together. And people who become interested in Buddhism don't only learn about and practice and explore one particular method according to one particular tradition or one particular teacher, but have the opportunity to learn and discover and explore. So what I'm hoping is going to happen in the West is that as a result of this, because it's, it's like it's a wide open slate, there's no, uh, there's, there's no rigidity there. So it's the opportunity for 
what I'm hoping will happen. The other thing that's important too is that uh, the West has a tradition of, of scientific uh, investigation where, uh, and, and for a long time science had no idea of how you would study something like the mind or Buddhism. But the methods are actually all there because if, if you take groups of people and they all practice the same technique, then you can compare the results that they have. Not only that, there's now scientific instruments, as the Dalai Lama has encouraged, scientific instruments that can measure changes that take place in the the brain in people who do certain kinds of practices. So I think through the combination of being able to compare and contrast and study and explore all of the many different methods that have been developed for, for teaching the Dharma, combined with the Western attitude of empirical science, test and compare, test and compare, test and compare. What I'm hoping is that we'll discover uh, we'll discover ways to uh, it may not be check into a clinic and they do a procedure on you, but much more rapid and effective ways to achieve the, uh, the state of enlightenment, the elimination of craving. You know, we talk about imagine a world that uh, uh, where, where our society and our governments and our businesses and everything were not driven only by craving, only by desire and aversion, as they are now. That's the only thing. A business now, it's how many, how many dollars it makes in the profit column at the end of the year. You know, which is, but um, even if 10% of people could become enlightened, can you imagine the impact that it would have? So, I don't know. Maybe it's just a dream. Maybe it'll never happen. But I can see the potential is there that perhaps Buddhism will take off in a way that, that we discover new and better ways to learn and practice the Dharma. And so that more and more people uh, go to their first uh, meditation session in uh, February, and then they are uh, stream winners by uh, uh, you know by December, sort of thing. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go for it. Yeah, I think so. I'll sign up for that. You're in it already. Good, Michael. What do you think this is? <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. And this is uh, this is what this is what I'm so happy to be in this world and to be a part of. And and so you're all my guinea pigs, right? (laughs) Happy guinea pigs. We're so happy to have you. We're so lucky. (laughs) Thank you. Happiest guinea pigs here. Yeah, and so, and so, yeah. See, my goal is that we'll have a convocation of twelve hundred and fifty arhats before I die. So you know, 
you always need something to some kind of a goal to go for, right? Well, you can do it. It's not that many. It's just oh. hundred, just uh, you know, twelve hundred. You okay, can, yeah, you can manage yeah. to do it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are all in. All right, good. <laughs> Everyone's on board. All right, let's go for it. Okay. So. Oh, uh, Sophia, you have a question. Because老师讲,就是说 When Buddha taught uh, he can people in the presence, a lot of people can enlighten, get enlightened. Yes, that's right. Sophia's question is uh, was there some added power, compassionate power by the blessing? Um, some kind of a superpower or blessing? Was, <laughs> was it helped by? And uh, this is uh, this is a, a question, yes, because in the sutras, um, as a matter of fact, right right from the beginning, the uh, and the very first people that he taught and who succeeded in following his path included there was uh, a, a, a young man a son of a wealthy family and he came to the Buddha and received the Buddha's teaching and, and then um, his father was concerned about this so he invited the Buddha to come to dinner and so he, the, the Buddha taught the Dharma at dinner in this home and uh, I don't remember. It was, I, I, it was, I believe, at dinner the first night that there was a sister and the mother became stream winners, and then before long the whole family. Without, without practice, they just listened to it. Well, according to the story, as, as it's told, as it's contained in the sutras. Mm-hmm. Likewise, even the very first, the very first ones, which were um, uh, the uh, other ascetics that he had practiced with before his enlightenment. He gave his very first teaching to, and over the course of about a week, they became enlightened. And the sutra doesn't tell us, you know, they may have spent all day meditating every day. Only enlightening in a week. And they had been practicing for many years. So presumably, yeah, a lot of the work had already been done. Uh There was a lot of preparation. But in the stories about householders becoming uh, awakened, then it doesn't make any reference. Now, it, it could be that they had been doing. I mean, the son was interested enough to want to uh, go forth, and, and uh, you know, it could be that that was a family that was already acquainted with some meditation practices. Who knows? But nevertheless, um, there are quite a few accounts where, as far as we can tell, people become enlightened even from hearing what the Buddha, even hearing the Buddha speak. And so the question here, okay, is, well. Did the Buddha was was this some special power that only the Buddha had, and so as far as everybody ever since then forget that we we're going to have to do it a much slower way. Don't know the answer to that, but anything we can do to speed it up and make it easier. Yes, Ben. Um, I'm not sure exactly who it was, but I think it was Ananda who. It took him a very long, even though he was sort of like one of Buddha's closest disciples, it took him a very long time to... To get enlightened. Yeah, so, so who knows, I mean, what is actually, what it is that... Yes, it was, it was Ananda. 
He was, for all of those years, um, more than 20 years as the Buddha's personal attendant, uh, he, he didn't get past this. And then after the Buddha died, and when the, uh, the, the first council was held, he was the one that had memorized all of the Buddha's teachings. You know, and the sutras we have now uh, were recited by uh, Ananda. So if there was anybody who could have become enlightened by hearing the Buddha... <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. That's and point. if the Buddha had the, the power, I mean, obviously he was very, very close to Ananda. And if it was just a question of some special power of the Buddha, you have to wonder why he would <laughs> hold that. Exactly. Just, but, uh, yeah, but he did, beca- he became an arhat the night before the council convened. He, you know, they said, you know, you, uh, we need you, you're the one that knows all the sutras, but you're not an arhat yet, you know. And so he, uh, he meditated, 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 and finally he was tired. And he decided to lay down, and before his head hit the pillow, he was an arhat. So, so he went from a first parishioner to a fully enlightened person. Um, he jumped a couple of steps. <laughs> well, don't know that for sure. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't say that he might have done those other steps, you know, before that night. But uh, yeah, this is interesting because you know, of all people, he had the entire Dharma memorized, which is you know. It says something about what the text can do for us, and he knew the Buddha himself. He was a primary mem- member of the Sangha, so he had all three elements. And what you brought, Sophia, I think, brought up about the Diamond Sutra. I forgot what the quote was, but something about um, stop, you know, halt ceasing your striving, and then so it's sort of like he find, he just kind of like fine, you know, I'm giving up, I'm gonna just rest, I'm tired of striving, and at that moment, that's when it happened, and he has that's all right. the other elements. So. You're absolutely right, and that's a very, very good point. You know, the, the secret is letting go. You've got the preparation has to be in place, but once it's there, it's the letting go. Right. That's the key word, right? Yeah, letting the go. final letting go. Yeah. So we, we, we're learning letting go. Yeah. Yeah. The skills are released. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, now wouldn't it be wonderful if we could? Somehow get to the point where you're just hearing the teachings uh, spoken in the right way. Now, what is said about the Buddha with regard to that is that uh, he knew the minds of his listeners, and it was because he knew the minds of his listeners that if there was he was speaking to a group and there was someone who was ready, completely ready then he would know just the right thing to say to trigger that person to become enlightened. So, so that's the superpower. Knowing, knowing the minds of the listeners, this is, this is a power. This is a supernormal power. So, so, so as, a, as, teacher, as, a, as a teacher, I think that should be one of your aspirations. It to, is. Yeah. It is. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, we are extremely lucky. <laughs> so, yeah, that's 
That's what I hope is the future of Buddhism in the world. So after you, you learn, um, after we all become our heads and, 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 and then maybe you can teach us, uh, teach us how to attain the super mundane power so we can, can help propagate the Dharma. Well, that is a, that's, the most, that's the most important thing is that uh, to, to be able to pass it along to other people. Yeah, to... This is a very serious matter. It's, I'm, I'm, I don't think it's funny. Son? What do you think of the future contribution of quantum theory to, to the Buddhism in the West? The, my what? The quantum, quantum theory. The physics. Oh, quantum, quantum physics. physics. Yes, yes uh, it's, quantum physics is very interesting because... It's, uh, it's, it's bringing us to a lot of the same conclusions that uh, Buddhism does. That is, um, uh, quantum physics is basically teaching us that, yes, uh, and emptiness, yes, no self, you know. <laughs> so... Um, and that's very important because it uh, it lends a, a, a huge uh, amount of credibility to what might otherwise be seen as some uh, foreign Eastern philosophy based in mysticism uh, and therefore easily dismissed as uh, as not that important, but when physics is known as the queen of the sciences, and when the queen of the sciences is coming to the same conclusions, then I think this makes uh, this makes people much more susceptible to taking a closer look at, at Buddhism. So it's very important in that regard. But the important thing is that our minds create this world and our intellects interpret this world and uh, so we can use science to discover that it's not really the way uh, our minds present it to us as but that by itself won't bring us any closer to making the necessary internal changes so the necessary internal changes can't come from simply from simply from knowledge, they can't come simply from uh, a science like physics. They have to come from the practical application of the science of meditation and the science of dharma practice. So. And we have a working theory, which is that the root of all our problems is desire, aversion, and ignorance. And that of all the realms of beings, as human beings, we have the intelligence that can overcome ignorance and replace it with wisdom. So we uh, we live a kind of existence that 
has both pleasure and pain, both suffering and happiness. Beings uh, in hell realms and the uh, uh, realm of, uh, of the what's known as the hungry ghosts or pretas, they have so much suffering and so much craving and so much uh, hatred and so much of these other things that they don't have any hope of enlightenment within it, you know, at those levels of existence. The, in the animal realm, uh, they are so compelled by their instincts and, and the, just the pursuit of survival and reproduction, and they don't have uh, necessarily the faculties that they need to overcome ignorance and to develop wisdom. The beings that live in the uh, Deva realms, the heavenly realms, have so much pleasure and happiness that they have no motivation. So we in the human realm are particularly fortunate that uh, if, uh, if the root problem is desire, aversion, and ignorance, we have enough, uh, we have enough desire an aversion to recognize the problem. Uh, we have enough freedom and comfort to be able to do something about it, and we have the innate capacity of intelligence to find the ways and apply the ways to obtain the wisdom, to dispel the ignorance, and to finally free ourselves of craving, of desire and aversion. So. Uh, we're in a very unique and wonderful position in this way. Yes? Um, <clears throat> the, the Mahayana Sutras depict some um, uh, image of like uh, thousands of us, uh, Buddha and uh, Arahans, and also the um, many, many universes like that. It's possible, right? Um, during the meditation, we can see this kind of image. Is that possible? Also, it's uh, was written down in the sutras. Is it possible also to this kind of image, you know, during the meditation, was written down uh, in the in, in some sutras? Uh, in in the original in the Pali sutras. Uh, Pali sutras as well, you know, they have yes. the depict of universe. Yes. But the, the, uh, these can be understood in different ways. They can be, started, be understood uh, as describing an actual cosmology, of, uh, or, or it can be uh, interpreted as describing the different states that uh, the, the human, or the, the, not the human, but different states that the mind can live in quite independently of any one particular realm. Um, in, the Buddha's, in the Buddha's own teaching, he always shied away from getting uh, in, into anything that was at all absolutist or ultimate, uh, uh, to questions of uh, uh, ultimate levels of reality and things like this. And so it's, it's un, unclear in those early sutras what level that those things are to be understood at. But also, 
it's more valuable for us in our meditation to visit those realms in terms of understanding their implications for either becoming enlightened or remaining trapped in the uh, uh, in the world as we present know it than it is in meditation to be able to visit these as some kind of self-existent uh, different level of reality. So I would say that's the more important question. The other question, the question of, of can, can these, do these have some kind of independent reality? Uh, can they be visited and known by a practitioner in a certain state of meditation? Uh, these are more intellectual, scholarly uh, questions that have less bearing on, on the real purpose of that cosmology in the first place, which is to help lead us to liberation. That's my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. Just wondering, the kind of a lot of assumptions, mm-hmm. why are they just too Yeah. I think it doesn't matter how many Araha you meet. It's important is I become an Araha. That's right. That's right. right. That's, right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it takes one to recognize one. So, so even if you bump into many arahats, you probably wouldn't know their arahats. Unless you become an arahat yourself. I'm more interested in my own practicing and uh, mm-hmm. you know, reach the goal. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that is uh, the most important thing. And <clears throat> just because uh, somebody's an arahat, doesn't mean they know they, they know how to help you become an arhat. So the most important thing is to <laughs> is for you to become an arhat, and in terms of anybody else you might associate with, the most important thing is that uh, the degree to which they are able to help that happen in, in you. So and, and a very important part of the practice is to associate with people who are on the path. So, but, uh, you know, good, good companions is very, a very important part of the practice and, and the Buddha pointed that out a number of different times in different sutras. But. So, uh, <clears throat> read, study, listen to teachers and associate with uh, people who are serious about practicing the Dharma. Another aspect of this whole thing that we, that I'd like to talk about before this retreat over is over. You know, is every night I say to you, with these ten precepts, uh, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Uh, through virtue, good fortune is attained, and virtue is the vehicle for liberation, and it is. I hope you had a chance to talk about effective ways of perfecting your virtue. Because, you know, just as with every other part of this of this practice, developing concentration, uh, mindfulness, uh, achieving stream entry, um, saying it is one thing and doing it is a different thing. And... Uh, having the wish to uh, cultivate the virtues and the perfections is one thing. 
but being able to successfully do it is another. And so, you know, there's methods, there's there's techniques that are that help do that. And so that's one of the things that I want to talk about. To overcome to overcome desire and aversion too. Um, you need to develop. You need to cultivate their anti their their opposites. The opposite of desire uh, is what? Desire. Uh, yes. What's the op- uh, content satisfaction? Uh, well, desirelessness is the absence of desire, but in terms of uh, desire as a mental state that is the motivator for action, that is the basis for uh, action in the world, the opposite of desire is generosity. generosity. Right? Oh, I see. Right? And uh, the opposite of Ill will is loving kindness, kindness yeah. uh, or uh, it's also patience is another important aspect of. So you need to cultivate generosity and patience, uh, in addition to the virtues of right speech and right action and right livelihood. Um, you need to practice mindful awareness of your mental states and your motivations and your intentions. And this provides a simple system for recognizing those that are wholesome and those that are unwholesome. Uh, In terms of the Eightfold Path, uh, I said to you right effort was part of the Eightfold Path. And I said we would come back to that and talk about that another time. Right effort is defined in the sutras as uh, causing unarisen, wholesome states to arise and causing wholesome states that have already arisen to remain. It's causing unwholesome mental states that have arisen to pass away. And it's causing unwholesome mental states that have not arisen not to arise, and that's that's the practice. That's that's a summary in a nutshell of right effort. We could translate this though: right effort in the world is learning to practice mindfulness in such a way that you recognize desire whenever it is present. That is an unwholesome state that has arisen. And you eliminate it. And you replace it with its opposite, which is generosity, therefore causing an unarisen, wholesome state to arise. Uh, Likewise, uh, with uh, ill will, uh, any tendency to cruelty, aversion, hatred, negativity, all of these things. Recognize when they arise. Bring about their passing away. And there's method to all of this. The answer is not that you, uh, you quash them. They're not quashable. You can't, you can't 
smash them, you can't cut them off, you can't drive them out. What you have to do is recondition your mind. But you can't overcome them and eliminate them. In the same way, uh, you can condition your mind to have their opposites arise. Uh, the practice of patience and the cultivation of loving-kindness and compassion. This is also the way that virtue is developed, that through mindful awareness you come to recognize when wrong speech is being practiced or when uh, a wrong action of some sort is being engaged in. And you come to recognize it through mindful awareness and then change the tendency in your mind for these things to happen in the future. All of these unwholesome mental states and uh, uh, intentions can be overcome. They are reinforced every time that we, uh, every time they arise and we allow them to manifest, especially when we accept them as being real and appropriate. When you get angry and in your mind you justify your anger, you are conditioning your mind to become angry in the future about other things. Indeed, you're conditioning your mind to become more easily in the future about more things. And the more often you do this, the more you become prone to anger. The same thing is true with with greed. When greed arises, and rather than seeing it as something unwholesome, you see it as something understandable, acceptable, natural. Well, of course I'm this way, and uh, what's wrong with it anyway? so forth, you become a person who is more more and more prone to greed, and you will experience more and more greed as a result of that. That's karma. Karma means action, and it means action, uh, bodily action, speech, and also thought, mental actions. And so any action at any level, and especially action at all of these levels at once, creates a strong imprint on the mind, a strong karmic imprint on the mind. And one of the fruits of that karma, the results of that karma, is that those same mental states are going to arise more easily in the future. Good karma works exactly the same way. If through mindful awareness you recognize the opportunity to practice generosity or to practice compassion or to practice loving-kindness, and if you bring that into your awareness and if you practice in that way, you will reinforce the tendency of that mental state to arise spontaneously in the future and it will come up more easily. You can remove from your mind the unwholesome mental states rather than reinforcing them. And you can create the karma for wholesome mental states to arise in their place. And so this is a very, very important part of the practice. Yes? Um, I have a question in regard to uh, having a good balance of um, 
of practicing virtue because like for example generosity I can I can see many people can be very concerned that by overly uh, being generous they can impoverish themselves and their family and uh, like for example Ananda you know he he was very generous with his time and effort and therefore he had a very very belated uh, enlightenment and and there seems to be a cost involved uh, so so therefore um, it seems like um, a person has to really decide what his or her goals are. Like for example, for Ananda, I'm sure I'm guessing for him it was well worth the sacrifice that he he made. And uh, for certain people, they rather impoverish their family than to. I'd like to see, you know, what what is your view of of this? Okay, first of all, I'm not sure that you can really. Uh, say that the reason that Ananda didn't become a, an arhat much sooner was because he was generous with his time and energy doing other things. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that you can uh, say that with any certainty. I mean, maybe you're right, but you don't know for sure. So don't assume that. <laughs> well, a lot okay? of people they contribute a lot, therefore they. Uh, well, another example would be just somebody who. Who give and give and give and have very little time to practice. Right. You know that's a very very possible scenario. Yeah, but I, I see the point. So let, let's talk about what your uh, what your actual point is. That uh, which is uh, can can you practice too much generosity? Uh, can you give too freely? Something. And first of all. Let's look at what the practice of generosity involves, and and how we and what we want to accomplish through it. You know, if what it involves is giving to others those things which you have the greatest attachment to yourself, and the reason that that's what it involves. Is because this is what will help to make you. We just finished walking, and now we're sitting. The reason is, if you practice generosity involving the things that you have the greatest desire for yourself, that that is what's going to be most helpful to you in coming to really understand and confront your own desire. You know. So, if you don't really care about money, giving away money isn't necessarily going to be the best practice for you. <laughs> uh, in terms of, well, what, what are the things with which we practice um, generosity? Well, of course, there's the worldly desires. Uh, uh, there are uh, Pleasure, we want pleasure, and pleasure is something that we have the opportunity in one way or another to assist other people in having in, in many different kinds of ways. You know, you can, uh, well, you can think of all, you can give somebody a massage, you can cook them a dinner, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you can. And, um, there is, are material objects, all kinds of money and material objects in all of its other forms. Um, 
one of the one of the worldly desires that we experience is a desire for uh, respect and admiration and, and fame and so forth like that. And that could be one of your attachments. You know, you could be a person who very attached to the idea that you're thought of as uh, as being the, the 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 best this or that or you know. In which case, you have that attachment. That's what you need to give away. You need to you need to express openly in front of other people your admiration for others and for their successes and their accomplishments, because this this is what you have to loosen your own attachment to. And if you're that kind of person, you'll find that hard to do. If you always want to be seen as the one that's the best, at first it's going to be pretty hard to to say to somebody else in front of everyone else, boy, you sure are good at this, you know. <laughs> right? But that's that's what that's the kind of work that you need to do. Uh, and and praise all these other things. The other thing is time and energy. You know, I I I'm very jealous of my time. Yeah, my energy, right? This is, uh, the practice for enlightenment. <laughs> uh, they are, yeah. I, like you said, you thought maybe maybe Ananda didn't get enlightened because he gave away too much time and energy. But nevertheless, if you are attached, if you're jealous of your time, if you resent whenever you have to give time to somebody else, helping somebody else, you know, if uh, I'm so busy doing so many important things that I really can't stop to help somebody fix their tire who didn't have sense enough to get AAA. <laughs> well, the same amount of time could possibly be better used by meditating, so therefore I refuse to be generous uh, in helping somebody to, to, you know, with a tire when I can... So somebody's out there with a flat tire, and somebody please help me so they can pull up and meditate, right? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, buddy, tap on my windshield once your tire is fixed. I'll know it's time to stop meditating. <laughs> no, but the thing is, you, you know, I know, I know, 24 hours a day, you know, if we spend an hour fixing somebody's tire, we're going to have one less hour to do. But what I, I, I think what's more likely to happen is if, you, if, you're, if you're really jealous of your time and really attached to it, Huh. And you spend some, you make some time and uh, uh, an effort, or, or actually, my choice of words is logic. You make the effort to be more generous with your time. Mm. You only need to do that to a certain extent to overcome your attachment to it. You know, and uh, you, it's not like you have to go and keep giving up all of your time for So it's not exactly altruistic. I have another motive is to overcome my problem. <laughs> it's, it's partly to overcome your problem and it's yeah. also to develop a, a, a compassion for others and understanding. You will benefit more from the decrease in attachment and the increase in compassion than whatever it costs you in meditation time. And I'm sure that some kind of balance will work out. You know, I'm, you probably won't end up as as a result of doing that in a situation where you don't have enough time for for your own practice and, and for your own life. But let's use another example: money. Okay, you could 
say, oh, I'm really attached to my money, therefore I should give it all away and too bad about my <laughs> children I'm busy being generous here. <laughs> uh, that's a naive and, and, and silly attitude. Probably what's going to happen is you're going you're to give this all away and then you're going to experience tremendous regret. And that's going to make an even bigger imprint on your mind. That's going to make your... That's going to make your desire and your attachment even stronger. You're going to go around for weeks and months, you know, saying, well, what a stupid, how could I, oh, man, you know, we're not going to listen to these Dharma teachers anymore. <laughs> so, we, so we have to accompany all our actions with wisdom. <laughs> there you go. This is, you know, we're, we're going, we're not going about this in some, this crazy dive in. It's, it's about wisdom. It's about mindfulness. So perfection, how do we define perfection of Perfection means we can give up the things we attach to the most, therefore we overcome our attachment. That's what he called perfection of these the, virtues. Yeah, the perfection of these virtues is to continuously refine them. Refine them. It's not, it's not that we can lay out a definition and say, okay, this is perfection, uh-huh. this is the target, uh, and once you're there, you're finished and done. It's a process of perfection, of continuously perfecting, you know, refining, and in and keeping in mind what your whole purpose is, is two things. Eliminate the unwholesome traits that are in your mind stream and replace them with the wholesome ones. And so, practice of generosity in all of its different forms gives you over and over again, every day, an opportunity to recognize this is an attachment I have. And to recognize that you can't overcome that attachment by giving away everything you have. You can overcome that attachment by every time you recognize its presence, then uh, looking at it, recognizing its unwholesome nature, seeing how it doesn't serve you. It's not contributing to your ultimate enlightenment. And then if you can, letting go of it. And even better than that, if you can let go of it and then perform an act of generosity in its place. Where does that generosity go? If you find your... Uh, if you discover uh, your attachment to money is very strong this morning, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you just toss some money out the window or you run out on the street and give it to somebody. I mean, you, what you would like to do is practice generosity that, in a wise way that is combined with uh, wisdom and loving-kindness. So, um, if, you're, if, if you recognize your attachment is the unwholesome that you're trying to remove from your mind stream, and that a generosity, loving kindness, and compassion are the things that you're trying to bring in. Then you try to combine them together in, uh, in, in a process of being generous in, in many different ways to make yourself more aware of and more mindful of and, and become free of that attachment. Yes? Yeah, I have a question about the karma mm-hmm. because uh, you were mentioned. Uh, actually, I just, you know, you mentioned like uh, the modern 
um, the modern era. So there are lots of technology um, happened. Uh, so for example, if I got uh, ammonia, and uh, should I just uh, wait and okay, <laughs> this is my karma, you know. If I die, I die. <laughs> you have not, you know. I don't use the. I mean, we are solution focused. Yes, right. You know, whatever. If there's no um, punishment or whatever, you know, and then I have to die. I have to die. But if there is a solution, you know, I mean, you know, I don't know the karma. Okay. Well, then this is a whole other topic that we could spend a lot of time talking about. But it's a very important one about karma. Karma is not magic. There is not some supernatural being somewhere keeping score and meeting out results. <laughs> no. Karma is cause and effect. You know, it's it's uh, just like if I if I drop the teacup, you know, it breaks. It's cause and effect. We can't always see all of the causal links and know what they are. But Karma is always about cause and effect. And also, uh, oh, there's so many, so many things that I, I could say about this, but in terms of the circumstances that happen to you, if you get pneumonia, um, it's to, to, to take an attitude like, well, I got pneumonia, it must be my karma, probably something I did in my last lifetime. It might have something to do with what you did last week. <laughs> we, we do things in the short term as well that causes it. It might also uh, be related to something that you did uh, when you were a child that uh, gave you a predisposition a, a weakness and susceptibility. Now, if you say it's my karma to get pneumonia, and so therefore, if I die from it, that's my karma too. So there's no point in going to see it. If I go see the doctor and it's my karma to die, I'm going to die anyway. But I may have a good karma, run into a good doctor and get into good medicine and I heal. Well, that, that's, the, that's the thing. That, you know, if you decide, well, there's no point in going to see the doctor, that's making karma too. You know? And if you die... It uh, doesn't necessarily mean you died because of uh, of the karma that you made in some previous life. It may be the karma you made in being too lazy to go to the doctor. <laughs> okay. I, just uh, don't karma should not should never be seen as a reason for not uh, behaving in the most reasonable and wise way. Look at it another way. Uh, if you've lived and infinite number of lives in the past, you've accumulated a huge amount of good and bad karma. And in any moment, in this moment, in the next moment, in the next, and every moment, tomorrow, and the next day, what happens to you is going to be the result of, of that huge accumulation of both good and bad karma. But it's also... Uh, there, there is more immediate karma that's going to determine which of your past karma comes into fruition now. Okay? So, um, if you uh, if you allow yourself to become uh, intoxicated and stand up in the middle of the street 
you're giving an opportunity for your past karma to get run over by a bus to happen. But if you don't get intoxicated and you never go stand out in the street, that particular karma might be there. You might have a karma to be run over by a bus, but it may never be fulfilled because you've never created the conditions for that karma to ripen. See? So, what happens in any given moment is uh, karma Karma adds and subtracts and multiplies and interacts. If you if you read what it says, says about karma in the sutra, there are there are karmas which uh, some karmas counteract other karmas, and some karmas keep other karmas from uh, coming to fruition. There are some karmas which make other karmas come to fruition, create, create the conditions and cause them. So, you know. The most important thing uh, uh, about karma is the karma that you're making in the present moment, always. What is happening to you now is the result of the karma from the past. You cannot change the past karma. It's over, it's done with. That karma has been created. And that karma is coming into fruition right now. But what you do right now is creating the karma for the future. So rather than worry about the past karma, it's the future karma that you're going to be concerned with. It doesn't matter what you do, what happens, whether you have pneumonia. It's not important the karma that caused you to get pneumonia. It's what you do in the moment. And what's most important about what you do in the moment is the intentions, the intentions uh, the uh, and the involvement of ignorance and desire and aversion in those intentions, because they will condition your mind. Now, there's another way too of understanding karma. If you look at how karma is described as being of two kinds: wholesome and unwholesome. And unwholesome karma is defined as karma, action, that produces an unwholesome result. And wholesome karma is what produces a wholesome result. Well, that's pretty simple, right? Except we're still not very, very clear on how to evaluate whether a particular karma is, is wholesome or unwholesome just on the basis of that. What is an unwholesome karmic result and what is a wholesome karmic result? A wholesome karmic result is defined as happiness. And an unwholesome karmic result is defined as suffering. Okay, so wholesome karma is what results in happiness in the future, and unwholesome karma is what results in unhappiness in the future. Starting to get a little simpler here, right? Yeah. Rob the bank and have a million bucks and be very happy. <laughs> very, very wholesome action, but yeah, it does have some. It does bring some people a lot of pleasure. <laughs> well, if you rob a bank, is that going to cause any suffering? Uh, I, I don't know. I never rob a bank. <laughs> I, I, I personally won't enjoy it. I, I'm pretty sure. Well, how, how do you think? How do you think the teller is going to feel that you're pointing the gun at? 
Oh, what, a, what, what if it's not pointing a gun? You just like you knock, you open a, a, a wall, and then you blow up a thing or something. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting carried away. Please oh, ignore my faces. Eddie, Eddie. Sorry. Okay, any action that you commit that uh, through through your and and these actions are going to be. Uh, based in ignorance and desire and aversion. Any action you commit that causes suffering for anyone, including yourself, is by definition unwholesome karma. Completely agree with that. Right. And any action that you commit which causes, uh, which eases the suffering or causes uh, pleasure or happiness for someone else or yourself, either one, you know, is in that sense, a, a, a wholesome karma. Okay? Now, it's, that's the immediate results and then there's a the long-term result. So if, I, if you do something that makes someone else happy, right, and that's the only effect, it doesn't not hurting anybody and makes someone else happy, then the law of karma says you're going to also experience a karmic result of that as, as the performer of the karma because the karma you performed was wholesome. But at the same time, the people who have who stole that uh, stole that money, mm-hmm. uh, they they may experience a lot of joy you know spending that money too. But of course, it's a, it's a kind of joy that has a lot of misery involved. So right. therefore, okay, so that's what that's what you're talking about. That's right. Uh, see, even right, right, right. Okay, you do something for somebody else to make them happy, but your motive in it. Yeah, your motive in it is uh, uh, rooted in, in desire. You know, it's because you want something else in return. So happiness is impossible. What you're doing there, the way karma works, is you're reinforcing the tendency for desire in your own mind. Right. Okay. Um, and desire causes suffering. Yes, so yes. by even though you're doing something beneficial for somebody else, you're creating bad karma for yourself because you're reinforcing desire in yourself. So when we're talking about these things that, you know, uh, preventing unwholesome mental states from arising and eliminating eliminating unwholesome mental states and causing wholesome ones to rise in their place, and the same thing with our intentions and our motivations, then what we're doing here is we are creating karma. We are conditioning our mind stream and we're doing it from a place of, of wisdom, from understanding. We see that practicing compassion, loving kindness, generosity, uh, that these things uh, are of benefit to others, and they're also going to be benefit of benefit to ourselves. We're conditioning our own mind stream in a positive way, and we are going to experience the fruit of that. Same thing with negative things. Every time, every time you uh, get miserable and upset about something uh, and uh, you, you may complain to other people and cause other people to become unhappy, but you're also, in your own mind stream, creating that imprint that is, uh, you're not happy, you don't enjoy that, and that's going to happen again in the future and you're not going to be happy then either. So, it, uh, it just keeps on, it just keeps on going. So. Create good karma through practicing the paramitas, the perfections. 
She's doing a good karma. She's doing very good. Well, having sympathetic joy. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm having the direct joy and satisfaction. <laughs> Wonderful. Can we share the good karma, Sophia? <laughs> oh, generosity. She's sharing. <laughs> karma is cause and effect, and it works in many different levels in many different ways. Virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. If you are a person who doesn't doesn't lie, doesn't speak harshly to other people, uh, doesn't uh, speak badly about other people behind their back, and doesn't gossip, this has many consequences. It is going to have it's going to have an effect on how the people you live around and work with, see you and think about you and treat you. Right? And that's karma too. That is that is very much karma. You are going to you're 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 going to experience the benefits of that. If you are a person who is honest, doesn't take things that don't belong to you, that is always careful not to uh, harm anyone else. Uh, who is uh, is very circumspect and considerate in all of your relationships with others, not just sexual relationships. This is going to have tremendous consequence for you in your life. If you're that kind of person and you're in business, just naturally people are going to be happier doing business with you and you're going to be more successful. In your relationships, people are just naturally going to, uh, to they're going to trust you they're going to love you they're going to respect you and you're going to enjoy all the benefits of that that too is karma virtue is the vehicle for a happy existence through virtue good fortune is attained and also virtue is the vehicle for liberation because by practicing virtue you remove the defilements from your mind stream that are uh, standing in the way of your liberation. So that that little set of lines there is telling you some uh, very profound truths there, and that's and, and, and it's all about karma. Um, yeah. I just like to share that uh, from uh, what I heard from uh, uh, other uh, Dharma teacher like uh, Ajahn Brahm. Mm-hmm. Uh, from his experience teaching retreat, he said that uh, a person who very generous by giving time and do lots of things helping others, yeah. those the people are doing very well in meditation. That's right. The limiter just come, you know, right away, and they are easy to get enlightened. Just mm-hmm. the opposite uh, from what Michael uh, right. Right. Uh, said that. The people who donate their time, their money, mm-hmm. they are very uh, uh, generous. They yeah. they give themselves. Those the people do so well in meditation. That that is very true, and it's a very good point to put it in exactly those ways. That actually, you can in meditation, you can spend a long, long time without achieving a certain stage in meditation. Whereas if you practice. 
if you do these practices in your life, then you, they can come very easily and very quickly. So, you know, it actually is a is perfect answer to to what you were saying. That you know, if you practice if you if you practice these virtues, your karma is that you will need much less time in meditation for the same result. Um, I was talking to you about the hindrances, uh, uh, sense desire, uh, ill will, and agitation due to worry and remorse. Where do these come from, and how do you overcome them? You know, uh, to the degree that you have overcome sense desire in your daily life, you're going to, it's, it's going to be much easier in meditation to uh, develop strong con- con- uh, concentration and mindful awareness. To the degree that you have conditioned your uh, mind stream, created the karma not to be a person with ill will, you're going to have the, the meditative joy, the piti is going to arise much more easily. Uh, obviously, if you lead a virtuous life, you're going to have many fewer causes of agitation due to worry and remorse. You know, a person who leaves a virtuous life has little to worry about. A person, a person who leads a virtuous life has very few causes for remorse. You know, and what causes they do have, they may come to mind and they can go out and they can do something to make some kind of amends or reparation. And free the mind stream from the remorse that causes the agitation and so the meditation will proceed very quickly and very smoothly. So, it's a very, you know, it's a very powerful way to be successful at meditation. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe last question. I promise. Sorry. Um, what acts of generosity can one do to overcome uh, lustfulness for the opposite uh, sex? Second, strong tendencies for uh, what? What acts of gener- generosity that can one do to overcome the lustfulness <laughs> for the opposite sex, or whatever you know, the sexual preference? The person <laughs> uh, brings to mind some funny answers, but. <laughs> <laughs> Share your harem with that. <laughs> no, that's not an act of generosity. Okay, you you look you you look at the nature of the the desire and the way that it manifests. Um, you know, a person who is filled with lust tends to look at a person of the opposite sex as sex as an object mm-hmm. and as a means to their own gratification. I see. The opposite of that mm-hmm. would be to see this person for what they really are, uh-huh. another suffering human being mm-hmm. deserving of compassion, needing assistance and support in various ways, and more than anything else, uh, wanting love that's not conditioned on something that they give in return. And so that's what you can do. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if you're a person who finds yourself filled with lust and there's some uh, person of the opposite sex that you're very attracted to, you can approach that person uh, from a place of, of 
in all of your interactions from a place of kindness, from true friendship, from, uh, from genuine caring, and watch your own lust and set it aside. I feel like a deja vu. I might have asked this question in, in a dream and, and receive a similar answer. <laughs> well, I think you, you, might have, you might have already known that, that answer. <laughs> you know, we talk about refraining from sexual misconduct. And sexual misconduct can take so many different forms uh, and it can, uh, it can produce a tremendous uh, amount of suffering. The sexual desire is so strong, it's such a strong urge, and it can lead us to uh, a lot of really uh, ignorant and unkind behavior. And uh, uh, I, I think it's probably common for uh, very attractive women to uh, be treated as an object. Yes, that to feel very and, and to be rewarded for something so superficial, rather than something so superficial, and you know they they're mistrustful of their relationships with men because they never know all, all that this person is interested in is uh, is, is, I agree. is sex. And, I, I felt and that all the time. This would. This is obviously... <laughs> yeah, that's why... I, yeah, that's yeah. how I deal with my lustfulness because I yeah. couldn't justify my lustfulness because, you know, yeah. this person is... I'm treating this person as a... Well, yeah. anyways. Yeah, right. So, it's not hard to figure out what to do. Yeah, I mean, you just put mindfulness to the, the, the situation and especially the, the thing is that what you're really doing is you're putting mindfulness to... Uh, your own desires, and then you're looking at the other person. You're understanding things from the other person's point of view. Okay. okay. I see. Thank you very much, sir. You're Sorry welcome. for the awkward subject. Yeah. <laughs> it's an important subject. You know, it's a, it plays a huge role in the world, and just so much suffering comes from from lust. I was just wondering, like, um, a similar subject. Like, what happens if you love someone a lot? Do you give your husband away? (laughs) 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 That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that, that love is attachment. There are many levels of love. And I think Daza has had that. Mm-hmm. I spoke about it, I think, a few nights ago, or yet yeah. last night. I'm sorry, I... Yeah, no, you're, I, I did, and, <laughs> and, and, and you're right. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's good to give away husband or wife, so I have time to practice that. Only <laughs> 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 husband and wife. So <laughs> <Too> much work. <laughs> yeah, but your husband or wife should have a say in it. <laughs> Husband. <laughs> he should give me away long time ago. <laughs> so I come here to do my retreat. <laughs> the poor man can have some peace. <laughs> oh, anyway, so. <laughs> well, 
this has been a, an interesting discussion, and uh, I hope it's I hope it's been helpful to you. Uh, but we can talk some more about the specific ways of practicing mindfulness that can uh, can can help you in uh, doing just exactly these things that we talked about, and, and we'll do that so that when you when you leave here, you'll be able to do that. It's it. It is really important to look. I mean, the Eightfold Path has all eight parts to it, and you can't just look at meditation by itself because it doesn't work that way. And uh, if you want to become enlightened, and I think you all do, <clears throat> then every part of your life is a part of the process. You know, it's. It's not going to happen as a result of spending a few hours uh, a week or a day doing particular practice. It's practicing all of all of the time, and the results of it are wonderful too. You know, the results of uh, the practices we talked about here are a uh, a happy existence, uh, good fortune, uh, as well as liberation. And the practice of meditation leads to to uh, happiness, tranquility, equanimity, and the power of mindfulness that allows you to do these other practices effectively. And of course they all lead to the acquiring of wisdom that overcomes ignorance. Yeah? How to deal with the pride? You know, for example, if we do some volunteer work, mm-hmm. say I serve the food for the visitors in the temple, and sometimes the, the, the the person receives the food, they really uh, praise mm-hmm. them, and they are happy. And when, you, when, we, when we receive this uh, compliment, we are also very happy. And this kind of pride is very subtle, and sometimes mm-hmm. not recognized, because mm-hmm. it's not come from uh, some people hate, hate me, and yeah, right. wrong speech. Yeah. Like well, the most important thing is, <coughs> first of all, to recognize pride when it's there, and, and to see it as the, as the a pro- as the problem that it is, <clears throat> and the uh, the thing that you can do is to practice humility. You know, you uh, you can avoid doing things in such a way that it brings attention to you, uh, and uh, but you can also just try to let go of that attachment. See that 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 attachment to uh, to the praise that you, you get is not serving you well. And the attachment's the problem. It doesn't matter how much praise you get if you're not attached to it. <laughs> but the attachment is what you have to uh, focus your mindfulness on. So the, the subtle um, uh, psychological insight, you know, these kind of things, actually uh, can benefit a lot from our meditation because uh, through meditation we can uh, see much clearer, you know, how the mind generates these kind of feelings. That's right, uh, because we, we all we all have pride, and we all have subtle manifestations of pride that we're not aware of, and it's not until we develop enough mindfulness to start noticing that uh, we can we even have any hope of recognizing it. So, uh, yeah. Ben, you're. Um, uh, <laughs> I resolved it myself. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I thought I came up with a better way for myself to um, 
distinguish or try to over or overcome uh, indulgence when it comes to food mm-hmm. is that before um, every time I eat something, I contemplate where the food comes from before I eat it. So mm-hmm. then um, appreciate the fact that it is there for me to consume, and so then I have less. Uh, frequency of indulging myself, so I just eat what I think is necessary. That sounds very good. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And that's how you do it. You just... You, you look at what's actually happening in, in, in your mind in these circumstances, and the, the uh, right things to do will become apparent to you. So that's a very good one. And whatever works, I mean, what works for you might not necessarily work the same for someone else. So, it's not it's not simple formulas either. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think. Uh, you want to talk more? We don't have more tomorrow. I, I, I know. He, he I'm doesn't very, rest I'm, today, he can talk to I mom. understand, because I just kind of <laughs> try to be funny. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this might be a, a good time to stop for this evening. And uh, I hope it's been good for you. I've enjoyed it very much. And thank you very much. And I uh, hope you sleep well. See you in the morning. Thank you.